Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. When Justin Trudeau said in an interview that pipelines won't happen in Quebec because Quebecers don't want them, that elicited a response from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. Here's what he told me. Next Tuesday, new federal legislation will allow police to demand a breath sample of any motorist, even if there's no suspicion of drinking and driving. Is this a violation of constitutional rights? I spoke with the executive director and general counsel, of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, former Ontario Attorney General Michael Bryant. A University of Toronto magazine article is headlined how the medical system is trying to wean patients off opioids. Richard Lawhern is the Director of Research for the Alliance of the Treatment of Intractable Pain in the United States. He takes exception with some of the statements made in that particular article. I spoke with Dr. Lawhern. Here's what he had to say. Here's a question for you. Why didn't Omar Khadr's lawyers appeal for full parole in 2015? He was eligible. Parole would have made Khadr seeking changes in his bail conditions to allow him to visit his Al-Qaeda-supporting sister Zainab and travel to Saudi Arabia, etc., completely unnecessary. Scott Newark is a former Crown attorney. He's also an expert in international security issues. I spoke with Mr. Newark about that and some other issues, including Michael Rafferty, a murderer of Tory Stafford, who's been transferred to medium security prison. So, Justin Trudeau, here's a, here's a, here's a tweet from Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan. Premier, Prime Minister Ad Justin Trudeau just said, Energy East will never proceed because, quote, there is no support for a pipeline through Quebec, end quote. The Premier follows with a reminder from Saskatchewan, you're elected as the Prime Minister of all of Canada's provinces and territories, not just Quebec. And then the Premier followed with, funny how Justin Trudeau would never approve a pipeline through Quebec because he says, quote, there's no support for a pipeline through Quebec, end quote. But he has no problem imposing a carbon tax on Saskatchewan, even though there's no support for a carbon tax in Saskatchewan. And then the Premier, uh, on his tweet displays a graph which very clearly points out where the support and lack of support for his, uh, Trudeau's, national carbon tax exists. Premier Scott Moe joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network. Premier, thank you very much for the time. How, how does it make you feel um, to, to, to hear Mr. Trudeau say this? Well, it uh, just adds to the, you know, problematic uh, the statements that we have heard for quite some time. We see our policy in this nation uh, virtually being formed on, on the back of a napkin, if you will, and and uh, there's goalposts that are moving, and no matter what the topic of policy conversation is, we see an equalization formula that's quietly pushed through in last year's budget. We see a regulatory environment uh, that is is uh, you know different in the case of uh, TMX when British Columbians uh, uh, you know are, are quite likely not supportive of that project um, where and and the federal government purchases that pipeline uh, to attempt to push it through which we, we agree with all pipelines being constructed but in the case of Quebec uh, because Quebec may not uh, be as positive on energy uh, now we see a statement where the Prime Minister uh, says that that pipeline will not go. And, and so we wanted to draw the comparison to uh, here in Saskatchewan, 
uh, we're not supportive of a carbon tax in any way. Uh, the majority of Saskatchewan people think it's a it's nothing more than a shell game with no environmental outcomes. So if if you're going to draw your policy on the back of a napkin, at least uh, attempt to draw it uh, somewhat consistently across the nation. Uh, and and when it, when it comes from the prime minister, when a statement like that is made by the prime minister premier, that just car- that's that carries extra weight, and that's just like a full stop exclamation mark. I think it explains this regulatory abyss that our that our nation is is in right now. It's affecting our our direct our foreign direct investment into many of our industries, most notably our energy industry. Uh, you know, let's let's go back to energy. Why it was. You know, there was a project that was in front of the federal government at, uh, not that long ago, and it was it was pulled because of the, the, the prime minister and the federal government indicating that they're going to start measuring upstream and downstream emissions. They're going to, uh, they're going to move forward with a new regulatory environment, but really uh, haven't come out clearly even today with what uh, that regulatory environment even looks like with Bill C-69, which is a vague bill, which allows uh, essentially cabinet more more approval and more uh, more fingers in the in the uh, in the decision making process, if you will, rather than allowing uh, you know the National Energy Board and science uh, to uh, to find us some positive uh, uh, safe uh, projects here in in the uh, and sustainable projects in the nation. So uh, this is this is very problematic. Well, there's a pr- and there's a pattern at a uh, at a at a town hall. Mr. Trudeau um, said last year, or maybe it was earlier this year. That uh, you know the the oil sands should be phased out, and then later on he said, "Well, I didn't really mean to say that." I, I question that, but I, you're, I mean, I shouldn't be putting words. In, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, Premier, but I'm frankly I'm stunned at what he what he said because he's the Prime Minister of Canada, and he's essentially he's closing the door on on Energy East being reconsidered and possibly being uh, rooted through Quebec because he's saying. Not Monsieur Legault specifically, although he said similar things. But Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau, saying it's not going to happen, and, he, and it's not the first time he's made he's made comments or taken action uh, like this. We see policy initiatives, uh, for example, a, a drilling moratorium in the north that cancels uh, the Mackenzie Valley pipeline. We see a, a tanker ban on the west coast that cancels the Northern Gateway, cancels uh, the Eagle Spirit pipeline. Um, we see him now trying to close the door on Energy East. Um, we, we're in a, a spot in TMX where we need that pipeline to be constructed, but as a matter of fact, we, we need them all. Uh, you know, there's proposals now coming out of, of uh, and premiers are having to make decisions with respect, respect to restricting production and buying oil cars, which will further challenge our, our, our potash and agriculture in, in industries here in Western Canada, all because of this regulatory abyss, this lack of, uh, lack of, of direction uh, that is that we need to be provided by our federal government, and it's just simply not being provided at this point in time with this these policy decisions that are are appear to be being put together on the back of a napkin as as they go. What's the um, what's the response to Mr. Trudeau? I've read your tweet, but what's the what's the reaction going to be from your fellow Western premiers? I mean, I, I guess I'm asking, what happens now? Well, this is this is the you know what I've always said is is the the equalization dollars are only available because of the wealth of our nation, and when you kneecap uh, the industries that are creating that wealth, and I always say, as you know, the sustainable industries that we have in 
in uh, in many cases in Western Canada, but our energy industry is among the most sustainable in the world here in Western Canada, and we need to start recognizing that, and we need to start working together as Canadians to ensure that we can get this sustainable, valuable product to market. If we can add some value along the way in St. John's, New Brunswick, we should we should most certainly do that. Um, it benefits not only those working families and and those opportunities in St. John's. It benefits uh, the prairie provinces and the energy industry, and it benefits all Canadians uh, through the equalization program. We are going to be heading towards a, a, a time here where we just simply aren't going to have the dollars to share through equalization. And, and this is a, you know, this is just, this is not the, the foundation that our, that our nation was built on. Our nation was built on unity, nation building projects like a railway, for instance, and pipelines. Uh, can have that same opportunity for us to build wealth in, in our nation of Canada, and we're going quite a different direction, and it's concerning. Um, his, his, Mr. Trudeau's energy minister, Jim Carr, said not long ago that TMX, for example, would add one oil tanker a day. I don't think people pay close attention to that kind of thing. But, but I, I wonder, what do you think, what's the end game here? Well, the end game is uh, less wealth in our communities across across Canada. The end game is uh, we just simply aren't going to have the opportunities uh, for you know well-paying careers in communities across Western Canada, New Brunswick, Quebec, uh, for for our children and that that entire next generation. And that is not the legacy I intend on leaving uh, for my kids and my my children's kids. Uh, I most certainly am going to uh, ensure that I work with our other premiers. As we enter the Council of Federation uh, here this next uh, next summer, which will be hosted in the city of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and we need to have a very very grown up conversation about what drives our economies in this nation, what drives our wealth, how can we enhance uh, those opportunities, do it sustainably, and and uh, just move away from uh, this this divisive uh, foolishness, if you will, that is really uh, going to take away the opportunities from our next generation. Yeah, uh, your options are limited, though. Our options as uh, as premiers across the nation, I think, are are not as limited as as one might think. Uh, um, you know, if we have uh, you know premiers in provinces uh, across across Canada, you save uh, one or two from time to time. We'll never agree on anything on everything. Pardon me, um, but we do have opportunities uh, to you know work together to advocate for the industries that we have and. Nowhere is there more uh, unifying uh, project in Energy East, and I wish the Prime Minister would see that and see that very clearly. Uh, you have you could put people to work in Western Canada, people to work all along the route in the construction of that, that safe and efficient uh, method of transportation, and many, many people to work uh, in New Brunswick in adding value uh, to this uh, sustainable Western Canadian product, make it a New Brunswick uh, refined product, Sell it to uh, people uh, in in central and eastern Canada, and then ship it off to places around the world. And mm-hmm. uh, do right by the environment, do right by the Canadian economy, and do right by that next generation, providing opportunities in in all of those provinces. It's really almost boiling down to a question of the Prime Minister's commitment to to national unity. Well, it starts to raise the question that we talked about uh, not long ago. That's right. Uh, you know. Do we have a nation? Uh, when when we see a prime minister of uh, of all provinces, or what should be all provinces and territories, and all Canadians, 
uh, starting to single out and support one province over a number of others, and really to the detriment of the environmental uh, opportunities that we have, and really to the detriment of of the economic opportunities we have uh, as Canadians, and really to the detriment of that next generation. And that is ultimately what we are doing here as elected members, is attempting not only to strengthen the opportunities we have to date, but really what we're doing is is building opportunities for for our children and and that entire next generation to have a stronger Canada than than maybe we even have today. And I I am going to continue to to partake in the conversation uh, on those terms. Premier Mo, thank you very much. Again, I'm looking at this this quote, uh, Energy East will never proceed, quote, because there's no support for a pipeline through Quebec. So what Quebec wants, I guess, according to the Prime Minister, Quebec is going to get, including another $1.4 billion in equalization payments. 66% of our equalization uh, is now uh, heading to one province. I don't believe uh, that was the intent at the outset of this program. That is staggering. That is absolutely staggering. Premier Mo, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Roy. Good talking to you always. There's the Premier of Saskatchewan. Next Tuesday, new federal legislation will allow police to demand a breath sample of a motorist, even if there's no suspicion of drinking and driving. Is this a violation of the Charter of Rights? Does it violate people's constitutional rights? The federal justice minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould, has said she's confident the new law doesn't violate the Charter, and uh, the intent to save lives is an incredibly justifiable purpose. Um, I talked to a lot of family members, and you've heard them on this program, of uh, people who have been either injured or killed by drunk drivers, so I want them off the road. But I'm uncomfortable with the idea of a police officer just being able to demand a breathalyzer Yet there's no suspicion that I've been drinking. To me, that just opens too many um, side doors to Pandora's box. Ari Goldkind, a criminal lawyer in Toronto, media commentator, always very generous with his time to us. Hi, Ari. Thanks for taking the time. Great to be on with you, Roy. So is this new legislation, uh, first of all, I'll ask you if it's something you approve of, and then I'll ask you whether you believe it's going to be eventually wind up before the Supreme Court. Uh, I think my first answer will be, unfortunately, to disagree with our reputable host, Troy Green. I actually don't see any issues with this. I don't think there's any bona fide charter issues with this. Remember, the charter isn't some document that is objective. It depends on the thoughts of a judge of the day, and any judge can twist any decision or issue into a charter breach. But I am very, very for this for a whole series of reasons. And uh, we can explore those if you'd like. Sure, go ahead and tell me, why does it make sense to you? So, first of all, and I don't want to betray secrets here, but the challenges to all of the people who are drunk as a skunk driving and get caught blowing two or three times over the legal limit is due to the tremendous legal abilities of the criminal defense bar. And it's one of the most lucrative ways to make money as a criminal defense lawyer that you can imagine. And how did we do it? by saying that when the cop pulled the person over, even though it sunk and times over, they didn't really have glassy eyes, or they weren't read their rights, or they didn't get the breath samples in two hours. They did walk the street line and the cop is lying. All those things are legal tactics to get people who are under the influence of alcohol off of 
charges. And remember, impaired driving charges take up more space and room in our court than any other charge in Canada. And it has been frustrating to me. And I appreciate what I'm saying may be sacrilege to some criminal defense lawyer, but I also live on the same streets as everybody else. I drive these roads. And to display the nonsense of the glassy eyes and all this, Leroy is not right. Okay, Ari, we're having a lot of trouble with uh, with, with your with the phone with just the oh. you know it's the, the usual stuff. It's the yeah. techno okay. garble. Okay. Um, it, it, can I, wherever you are right now, just stay right there. Okay, because that's sounding let me, good. Let me uh, let me. I don't know where you lost me here, but let me move off since we know. Yeah, just go ahead. Here. We we have the gist of what you said for up to now. Okay, so how is this? Yeah, I I think we I think we're okay. Okay, so long story short, again, people are complaining about, for example, constitutional or charter infringements or breaching our civil rights. I can tell you, Roy, that anybody driving right now, right now, should view it as a privilege. And if you want to share the roadway with somebody who's driving a 3,000-pound machine and in the wrong hands could kill people, as Mothers Against Drunk Driving will tell you, let's think through what the infringement might be that people, and you are one of them, you were very open in the introduction, you may get stopped once or twice in your lifetime, and for maybe five to ten seconds, you'll have to blow into a straw. Well, I question anybody who has a problem with that, because when you go to the DMV to renew your license or your license plate once or twice a year, you're standing in line for two or three hours like an idiot in line. Okay, so you're, I, I get what you're saying. Here's my concern, and i just uh, been spending quite a bit of time on the air with a mother who yep. lost her son, and uh, t- two, of, two of his best friends to a criminal who, uh, who hit their vehicle at 200 kilometers an hour yep. and was driving drunk. I spent a lot of time with people uh, who've been victimized by drunk drivers. I want them off the road. But I have concerns, Ari, about a police officer having the liberty or having the legal, the legal right to, without any, any suspicion, anything to justify, a suspicion, or even have no suspicion, that I was driving inebriated or under the influence to order a breathalyzer. That, to me, just opens, as I said, little side canals to Pandora's box. Then you have the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. We'll be talking to Michael Bryant in a few minutes, the executive director and former attorney general for Ontario. Their concern is that police will probably be pulling over more minorities and uh, and so that that exposes or puts minority minorities at risk from this particular piece of legislation my concern again is it's and i'm a big supporter of police but my my concern is that a police officer without any suspicion that i may have been driving under the influence has the right to order a breathalyzer that just is just doesn't it just doesn't sound right well, let's go to two part. That's a two part question. One, let's start with the breathalyzer part. First of all, police still have to have a bona fide reason to pull you over. They can't just see a car driving that's going the speed limit and for blank and giggles just pull you over and say blow. Two, it's not really a breathalyzer test, so to speak. You're blowing into a straw. It'll take about five seconds. Oh, no, I get that. You. Right. I, I get so, that. And so to me, I don't understand. And I'll get to the Michael Bryant part, who I know, I have deep respect for. I understand he's doing a wonderful job representing his organization. I think the minorities angle and argument is absolutely a red herring, a non-starter. I don't believe it for one 
single second. I'll get to that in a second. But if you're pulled over or you're at a ride check, I like the idea that we don't have to play the judicial nonsense game of glassy eyes. If it is too much of a sacrifice for anybody on our road to simply blow into a straw for five seconds. Yeah, but that's not my point. No, but I understand that. But nothing that has been happening up to now, Roy, this is my point. Nothing that's been happening in our courts, with our police, with our current regime, has served to minimize or reduce the carnage on our roads. And what that means in court language is nothing is done to deter or to put the fear of God into drinking and driving. If you now know that no matter what, essentially no matter where, you might, maybe once in your life, maybe twice, have to blow into a straw without all of the stuff about hiring a lawyer and getting a fix. You may, and I emphasize, Roy, you may, because some people are going to drink and drive no matter what. They don't get the message. They don't listen. But if it leads to 100 less people a day doing it, Roy, where the cop doesn't have to come to court and say glassy eyes, that's a sacrifice. Even if you say it goes too far, you support the police, I think it's a very worthwhile sacrifice in the day and age where mothers against drunk driving are spinning okay. in their loved ones' graves. Ari, listen, you make a persuasive argument, except where it, for me where it doesn't work anymore is when there is no justification required for the police officer to require a breathalyzer. This can go beyond breathalyzer. What's the next thing? What's the next time that, it's not, that there's no suspicion required? Let me, Let me tell you about that, because what a lot of people might think, Roy, and you, you are onto something, is, well, what about if you're high on cannabis or they think that you're high on uh, cocaine or ecstasy? Yeah. This is only when it comes to alcohol. No, I know that. People should understand that this isn't some far no, I know that. thing to search your car. And the argument I want to make about minorities, and I appreciate Mr. Bryant, again, who I have deep respect for, very much so. He and I could debate this for three hours. There is no evidence in Canada that impaired driving is a crime caused, related to, or involving any significant portion of minorities. Two, the idea that in Canada, with our changing demographics, that Canada is now a majority white minority, God knows what country, is false demographically. Three, the idea that any police officer who wants to make our streets safe from carnage and get drunk driving off the roads yeah. will have any bias towards any minority versus any small-town Caucasian, I think is an argument that is absolutely not based in yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with Mr. Brian either, but we'll hear what he has to say when we, when we talk to him in a couple of minutes' time. But again, to me, it's an issue of stretching the bounds or stretching what a, a police officer's right to investigate. And yep. if you're investigating without suspicion, uh, whether it's the, the breathalyzer and it could lead to other issues, I really think, Ari, this is over the line and I think it's going to go, I think it'll wind up before the Supreme Court of Canada. But you know better, oh, oh, you know that argument oh, much better than I do. A hundred percent it will, Roy. You're absolutely right. I wouldn't disagree with you for a second. This will end up at the Supreme Court. Some judge at a lower court will knock this down, yeah. pick the right case. Yeah. It'll then go to the Court of Appeal of Pick Your Province. It'll then go to the Supreme Court. And I think at the end of the day, yeah. and again, smart people will disagree on this, the Supreme Court will either speak to the people who are on the side of just everybody having to tiptoe around. We have, no, we have no responsibilities in the world. And I've got about 30 seconds, my friend. And my view is that the Supreme Court will uphold this as a reasonable balance. And even if I'm wrong, Roy, and even if you're right, 
I'd rather be on the 401 or any major highway under this regime than the previous one, which simply didn't work to keep our streets. Yeah, safe. and and you know that I you know that I want the drunk drivers off the shore. And if you want to make a change, if the if they want to make a change, as far as legislation legislation is concerned, then make it more incumbent on individuals who drive drunk and create mayhem and murder, put them in prison for longer than three or four years, give them a give them a life sentence because nobody forced them to drink. Ari, it's always great talking to you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Roy. Ari Goldkind, Toronto criminal lawyer and media commentator. When we come back, we'll talk to Michael Bryant. All right, let's talk to Michael Bryant, the executive director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, former attorney general for the province of Ontario, about this legislation, which will allow police officers to, uh, to demand a breathalyzer test, uh, whether or not there's suspicion that the driver has been... Uh, has been driving under the influence. Mr. Bryan, thank you very much for the time. What's the concern? Well, uh, the uh, when, when you're asked to uh, give a breath sample, uh, you're asked to give a, um, a bit of yourself. And, and I, I heard what you said before about um, uh, how it might be characterized, the breath sample. Like, it, what's the big deal? You just kind of blow into a straw. Uh, well, uh, it really depends on when you think the state should be in a position to be able to demand uh, a piece of ourselves. And uh, under our constitutional law, I would argue that um, the taking of a breath sample is significant. Uh, The Supreme Court of Canada has described it as the use of a person's body without his consent to obtain information about him. Yeah, I just want to point out that I'm more in line with your thinking. Right. I think you're right, talking. Right. You, you were listening to my my guest, Ari Goldkind. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I know. But, okay. But you. But. Uh, but I. I, I mean, yeah. Okay. I go ahead. Go ahead. I, I may have misattributed it to 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 you. Sorry about that. Uh, so my my the point is um, this is a this this is touching upon our liberty and and the reason we have a problem with it is because it's an infringement of our liberty and it's always it's been uh, understood that if uh, the state is going to inter you know going to get into the business of my business, namely uh, my breath, uh, my blood, um, and in any way physically apprehend me, uh, then there there needs to be a hurdle that that has to be crossed, and that's always been either you get a warrant for uh, to convince a justice of the peace that it's necessary based on evidence, or the police do it because they have reasonable and probable cause. And as, as you have already said on this show, in this case, they get to go straight to the infringement of liberty without that first hurdle that has always been. That worries me. I just received an email from a retired police officer. He writes, as a retired police officer, I witnessed over the years many abuses against individuals who were hated by police. When you remove reasonable and probable grounds for stopping someone, that kid that is on the cop's bad side will be stopped every time he's spotted behind the wheel. Right. Uh, that may well, be an exaggeration, but yeah. there's a retired police officer's perspective. Uh, well, and and uh, it then gets to where the abuses can be at their greatest and where, you know, even if it's unintentional, what ends up happening is, is you know, we, we, we know from study after study that has been done and by talking to members of um, uh, multicultural communities, that uh, there is a real concern about uh, people uh, getting disproportionately stopped 
because of the color of their skin. Uh, just uh, uh, the latest one was from York University. Looked at uh, they analyzed eighty thousand traffic stops in Ottawa and found that young uh, Middle Eastern, Black, and Indigenous men were disproportionately subject to traffic stops. Um, that actually didn't lead to anything, any warnings or charges. So in other words, there was no obvious justification other than the fact, other than the color of their skin. Can you, so, stay, yeah. can you stay with us a couple of minutes longer? Yeah, of course. All right, Michael Bryant, Executive Director of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, is my guest. So, Mr. Bryant, you were saying that uh, the CCLA's, I don't know if it's your major concern, but certainly a significant concern is that um, members of multicultural or minority communities could be on the receiving end of more attention than that is fair. Yeah, and, and we say that based on uh, the fact that uh, there have been uh, many studies and findings of the courts uh, finding that, uh, you know, it's not, it's a systemic problem. It, it, it's not that anybody's, well, some people do, but uh, the systemic problem is not necessarily taking the position that police officers are saying, oh, that person is that color, and therefore I'm going to question him because they must be dangerous, but that, you know, that that's what's happening, whatever the explanation. So it may be that it is subconscious, uh, it may be that it is conscious, but in any event, the fact is that uh, people who... Uh, don't look like me, uh, white Anglo-Saxon, uh, they it, more often than not get pulled over. So the point is is that they will end up bearing the brunt of this, which, you know, uh, firstly uh, is wrong, that we would have two justice systems, one for um, Caucasians and one for everybody else. And secondly, that we would uh, create this uh, sort of entrench this tension between the policing community and multi-ethnic communities. So, so uh, let me let me ask you this: Is there is there proof that this is going on that that police actually do pull over for whatever reason, pull over members of minority communities or the multicultural community more than they would pull over either you or me yes. as white Anglo-Saxon males? A hundred percent. I mean, uh, study after study. I mean, there there was uh, first if you were talking. Uh, if, if you said that, if you or if I said that to an audience of, uh, of um, multicultural Canadians, it, 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 they would burst out laughing. I mean, so is it, it then yeah. is it then fair then to assume or to uh, project that police would then also be more likely right. to demand a breathalyzer from right. somebody who's a multi member of the multicultural community than from you or me? hundred percent. So, so this is the concern: is that uh, this is going to uh, be used as uh, a way in which police can stop uh, and ask questions, uh, delay, detain, um, and uh, keep uh, uh, multicultural communities from going uh, their their merry way. And during that time, uh, they are. Uh, going to try and find some other evidence that will allow them to uh, undertake a broader search uh, to find out whether or not the person uh, has done something wrong. So while you're sitting in the police car, say, waiting for the machine to to, uh, to tell you what's going to happen, uh, while you, while the while they are clearing your uh, driver's license, um, while uh, that you've already handed over to them, uh, all those things are 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 really part of the life of 
multicultural Canadians in in large urban centers. If you're now, driving uh, around, yeah. you're probably going to get stopped. Okay, so now you have, but you have a federal government. You have a federal government that supposedly thought this through, right? Right. right. They, yeah. they, they gave it some thought. I mean, and then they're talking about other jurisdictions where it's been successful. But they've given it some thought. So why wouldn't the justice minister have reached have the same concerns you have? Because we have the prime minister who insists diversity is our strength. So why wouldn't I mean I'm just I I I, I don't know you can't answer the question I guess but why would they do that? Why would they Why would they pass this law? Well, uh, because it's part of uh, their justice strategy. They're trying to and I I this is what we did when we were in government uh, in the uh, over 10 years ago when I was a justice minister under the McGuinty government. Uh, we, we didn't want to be accused of being soft on crime. Uh, we didn't want conservatives to get the upper hand on anything. And so we uh, were not civil libertarians. We went out of our way to undertake measures and, and I would undertake whatever Mothers Against Drunk Driving asked me to uh, because we were focused on electoral success. And yes, it is up to the justice minister is supposed to stand up and say, no, well, we can't do the unconstitutional things. And uh, hopefully I did that. But in any event, uh, th- this, this law also contains a new mandatory minimum. It's a mandatory minimum fine uh, and an increased maximum. The current government, which many people were hoping we're going to get rid of all the mandatory minimums under the Harper government, didn't. This is one of a long line of laws that they have brought in to uh, um, neutralize the charge that they're soft on crime in the next election. So, the, so this is a political move. A hundred percent. Oh my goodness, a hundred percent. Thank God you're saying that because I mean, I'm, I'm, I, it's refreshing to hear this because I, even when I talk to people who've been in in government who've held considerably important positions in government, like you as the justice minister in Ontario, and you and I disagreed on on pit bulls, but we won't get into that. Um, but it's good to know that somebody's actually saying, yeah, we make decisions for no other reason than they're politically expedient. But this is but this is wor- worrisome then. So you're making a politically expedient decision. It's federal legislation. Mm-hmm. It is it is going to be it's going to impact along with other things in that bill, the omnibus bill, it will impact the, the, the election next October. And some people are going to be you know, you're, you're, you're telling me some people are going to be hung out to dry for no other reason than there's an election coming up. Oh, that's correct. Yeah. No, no, no. This is about this is about votes. This is, the, 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 uh, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau did not get elected because of a, uh, the promise to uh, uh, do whatever Mothers Against Drunk Driving told them to do. That's not that wasn't their mandate. They had a different kind of mandate. Now, someone some would say, if anything, they have the other mandate, the civil libertarian mandate. But that's clearly not been the case. I mean, CCLA is in the courts fighting the Trudeau government constantly on civil liberties issues like solitary confinement and so on. But on this on this particular bill, remember, uh, this also includes an offense uh, for uh, refusing to blow. So uh, the Hamilton gentleman who recently won uh, a legal action against the police force, uh, um, you'll know the story well, he was asked by the police for his identification in in a parked car uh, in a church, and and, uh, he didn't need to give it over, and uh, he ended up on his face in the parking lot. Um, If somebody gets stopped by the police 
and and a breathalyzer gets stuck in their face uh, and they say, have I done anything wrong? The police will say, no, we this we have the authority to make you blow, even though we don't have any suspicion that you've done anything wrong. If individuals say, no, I, I should have the right. I, I have my rights. You need reasonable and probable cause. Which I would have which I would have believed to be the case until I found out. That's right. Well, for refusing because you refused, uh, you'll be guilty simply for refusing to comply with a mandatory breath demand and uh, you know, for which there's a criminal record and uh and uh you know, very significant punishments that flow with that. The 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 biggest problem with random testing is it's actually not random testing. I mean, that, it, that's a misnomer. It, it's ideally random testing. Let's hope it's random testing. But really what it means is testing based on whatever the police officer wants, like testing based on oh, let's go to this corner. Let's go to that corner. Let's ask this person. Let's ask that person. It just means you don't have to have any justification mm-hmm. for sticking the machine in somebody's face and saying blow. So if you if you go to a specific corner or an intersection in order to catch people running red lights or speeding because you know it's going to happen there, you're also then placing, because of this legislation and the power that it gives the police officer, you're placing people who are driving through that particular intersection in double jeopardy. That's right, because there'll be people who have done nothing wrong. They haven't run. And the it's lights. just because they happen to be geographically at that location. Exactly. exactly. That, and, and they have to blow. <laughs> There's something really wrong with that. Yeah, and, and what is really wrong is that their liberty is being infringed mm-hmm. with no justification whatsoever. And our Constitution has always required that if you're going to have to give up a piece of yourself and and be and you know subject yourself to a search, in this case, blow into a machine, there needs to be a good reason for it. And now, what the Trudeau government has done has said, no, you don't need any reason whatsoever. Now, I want drunk drivers off the road uh, oh, as much so as I. anybody else, and I think there should be more stringent. Um, more, more, longer prison sentences for those who drink and drive and, and kill. But this one, uh, this this piece of legislation troubles me. Will you be taking it to the to court, the CCLA? Hundred percent. At the, at, you know, I don't know if we will um, beat uh, the criminal defense bar there because you know the first person charged with this presumably, if they have a half decent lawyer, will bring a constitutional challenge. Uh, but we we will be in court fighting on this issue. Uh, in 2019. Okay, so now if I were being really rough on you, mm. I'd ask you, so are you telling me there are half-decent lawyers? <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> They're everywhere. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. Thank Michael you. Bryant, bye-bye, Executive Director, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, so definitely going to go to court. And it was refreshing to hear a former Attorney General say, uh, we, we made decisions just to win an election. We didn't make a decision because it was the right decision. We made the decision because it would help us win an election. You know, that may be the first time I've heard that from a former high-ranking government minister. I don't think I've ever heard that before. Doctors are not prescribing opioid medications anymore because they're afraid of the college, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is refusing to come on this program and speak with me even though they offered their president, and now they don't even reply to emails, they offered their president
but now they don't reply to emails. Why is that? Why could that be? Tough questions, maybe? Uh, there's an article in the University of Toronto magazine how the medical system is trying to wean patients off opioids. Uh, Richard Lawhorn, Ph.D., director of research of the Alliance for the Treatment of Intractable Pain, uh, writes there are several provable falsehoods in this article. And, uh, and one, Richard, uh, you say, or you write, is that physicians overprescribing to their patients is in any way related to significant elevation risks for opioid addiction or mortality. I'm sorry, we're, we got a little longer in the last segment, so we have about four minutes. So take that on, please, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, fine, Roy. Um, with several others, I've been uh, careful to try to keep my comments on the opioid crisis uh, evidence-based. And one of the things I objected to in the University of Toronto magazine was an unexamined assumption that prescribing opioids automatically uh, creates a, a, a substantive risk of opioid addiction or of uh, mortality. It's like uh, somebody's bought into the fiction that opioid pills of any kind are basically heroin pills by another name, and, that, and that's, that's simply a misrepresentation. We know from analysis of the data published by the CDC that there is almost no relationship whatever between medically managed opioids and elevated rates of uh, opioid mortality, of deaths due to, to overdose. In fact, the demographics of this problem, the, the population dynamics of this problem, directly contradict that. Seniors in the U.S. get prescriptions for opioids about 250% more often than people under age 30. But they have the lowest rate of opioid-related overdose death of any age group even while the rates have skyrocketed in the last 17 years for kids under age 21 to levels that are six times higher than those of seniors. We also know that opioids are highly effective when used over the long run. And this is another area where the University of Toronto basically uh, is, is uh, transmitting an opinion that really doesn't have much basis in fact. There's a lot of, of people who've said that opioids are not as, as effective over the long run. That's not true. There are over 1.6 million patients in the U.S. who are maintained on doses that are higher than the threshold of risk that's identified in our CDC standards. So what we've got is a lot of misrepresentation on the part of fringe element crazies who want to push opioids out of practice, and that has to be opposed. Okay, well, I, 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 want you to, I don't want you to, I don't refer to the article author as a fringe element crazy, because um, that's not fair without the author being here or, or speaking to it. So let me add, no, let I, me, I don't want to be denigrating in that way. I hear no, it's not, yeah, there's an awful lot fair. of people that, that were that, that title will, will apply. No, no, I know what you mean. I just want to I be clear that we're not talking about the author. We're talking about... Uh, individuals and people who make unsubstantiated points and arguments and actually endanger the lives of chronic pain patients who will take their own lives because of the massive agony that they suffer. One patient said to me, look, and I mentioned this on the air last weekend, Richard, some, one patient said to me, it's like my going in for, for major surgery and the surgeon says, oh, we have something for your pain while you're sleeping. Here's the Tylenol. And that person said to me, that's my life. That's how I live. 
So if they take away my prescription opioids, that's how I'm going to be living. And guess for how long I'm going to be living. I don't want to hear that kind of talk, but but that's what that's what I'm hearing from people. They're terrified, absolutely terrified. Absolutely. And it's not just they're terrified. This is actually happening. Yeah, people it is happening. are being refused post-surgery and uh, yeah. uh, pain control and, and cancer patients. Tylenol. Even cancer Sorry. patients. Richard, we're yeah, going to have to we're going to have to we're going to have to pick this up uh, again and really soon, okay? I'm sorry about the short time, but we'll have to pick this up again because I'm not letting go of this. Okay, and I'll be happy to support you when you're ready. All right, we'll call you again. Thank you, Dr. Richard Lawhern, PhD, Director of Research for the Alliance for the Treatment of Intractable Pain is in the United States. Now, Omar Carter's been uh, in the news, of course, because of his bail hearing and you can go to RoyGreenShow.com and you can read my most recent blog post there, RoyGreenShow.com, because I uh, I remember Mr. Trudeau saying we should be angry. We should be angry. We should be angry that he uh, that he wrote a check for or authorized a payment of ten point five million dollars for Omar Cotter. That's one of the issues we're going to talk to Scott Newark about uh, right now. Professor at Simon Fraser University. National security expert, post-9-11 advisor to the federal and Ontario governments, past senior policy advisor to federal minister for public safety, and prosecutor in Alberta. So you remember that, eh? We're supposed to remain angry. Uh, yes. Um, the uh, thing about the, uh, the Cotter case is it's always sort of like, what's next? And here we go again. I mean, I'm reminded of that great country and Western song, How Can I Miss You When You Never Go Away. Uh, this latest uh, twist is uh, probably uh, among the most hypocritical I think I may have ever seen in you know, my entire career. And I suspect this is more um, originating with uh, his lawyers than it is with him. But basically... The, um, what people have seen as the, uh, the story is that Cotter is trying to get his bail conditions uh, changed yet again. But it goes back to the question about why he's on bail in the first place. And you will remember, because we've talked about this uh, case uh, for years, including when he was uh, in custody and when I was through the, uh, the platform of your show uh, debating his U.S. Navy lawyer, uh, Lieutenant Commander Bill Keebler. That's right. Um, but back in, he was transferred to, you know, he pled guilty in the United States in uh, 2010 after denied. He signed attestations that there was no threats and that he was telling the truth and pleading guilty. He got, uh, we, because of the discussions that, uh, frankly, we had, uh, his uh, counsel were aware of the International Transfer of Offenders Act, which uh, meant he could get his sentence uh, transferred up to Canada. And nobody ever talks about this, but the Harper government actually gave them a letter and to the U.S. authorities saying that Canada would, quote, look favorably on a request for a transfer. He pled guilty at the end of October 2010. He was transferred back to Canada uh, in the end of October 2012, went through some legal procedures, and in all fairness, he's legally entitled to have done what he did, and he, you know, got his sentenced to be served in a provincial institution instead of a federal institution because he was only 15 at the time he committed the offense. But then in 2015, when he was eligible for parole, because it's governed by our laws, not the American laws, and serving on this eight-year sentence, if you remember, he asked for, uh, they filed this appeal in the United States, and then he asked to be released on bail. 
And I remember you and I talking about it, and, and, and my saying at the time, like, I can't, what on earth is the reason that he would be doing this instead of applying for parole? I remember that conversation. Well, it turns out two years later in 2017, when your friend Justin cut him the check for, uh, it, it, we turned out that there wasn't a single reason as to why he was doing it. There were 10.5 million reasons, because that's what the payoff was. And the whole notion of, oh, I really wasn't guilty and I was forced into it, fit better in the narrative of why I should be getting a check. And so, guess what? That's what happened. And now he's back in front of a judge. Because, and by the way, his sentence is, would have been actually over at the end of October of 2018. But because he went back in front of the judge, it's as though it's been put on hold, and he's still got approximately three years to serve on it. But, of course, now he wants the freedom that he would otherwise have had he completed his sentence. Yeah. So what he is complaining about or what his lawyers are complaining about only exists because of what he did. And let's keep in, yeah, let's keep in mind that he pled guilty to those charges, right? I mean, he pled guilty. Yes, to five counts, yes. So he was eligible for parole in 2015. He was eligible. Yes, he was. He was eligible even before then. But instead of applying for parole, and the conditions would have been exactly they, the same. They, they, they challenged the, the verdict. That They challenged the guilty plea to which he uh, admitted to. Yes. The theater of it. Because, in my opinion, because it fit better. And, oh, yeah, by the way, and I've, you know, uh, suggested this for years, even before uh, he uh, uh, got the payout, uh, that a the real uh, uh, part of this was because this is how he paid his lawyers off. It's called contingency fees. And he's got at least three lawyers. Uh, I'll bet you anything. And he's the lawyers always go, oh, I can't answer that question because of solicitor-client privilege. Well, how about it, Omar? Why don't you tell us how much your lawyers got of that $10.5 million? Yeah. And it worked for him then to get the, uh, the, uh, the, the payoff of $10.5 million. But now because literally he hasn't completed his sentence, okay, now he wants to go back. And if you read the story, one of his lawyers is uh, tap dancing around and going, well, uh, yeah, it's a unique situation. Um, we think we'd kind of like to get the parole board to say that, you know, uh, he has to have a parole uh, consideration. They're going to try, you watch, they're going to try to get the parole board to say, in effect, he served his uh, complete sentence and he should now have his sentence over. Now that he's got the $10.5 million. Correct. I tweeted something earlier this week because I still find this disturbing, and there's too many loose ends, and I put that in my blog post as well. And one of it, this is what I find disturbing: Mr. Trudeau uh, allowed for a visit to the prime minister's office by one Joshua Boyle. Oh uh, yes, right, Mr. Boyle, who is facing 19 criminal charges, and the trial begins on the 25th of March of next year. I believe that's the date. So now, Mr. Trudeau, for reasons known only to him, invites Joshua Boyle and his family to the PMO, and he's bouncing Mr. Boyle's kids on his knee. Uh, and after the bouncing session of the PMO ends, uh, Boyle tells media that, oh, yeah, he's known Trudeau for quite some time. In fact, they met in 2006 over yeah. common interest. Now, keep in mind, Mr. Boyle was married to Omar Khadr's sister, Zainab, Correct. who's the al-Qaeda supporter. So now Boyle says, uh, yeah, I've known Justin Trudeau, and we met uh, in 2006, and there were common interests. And Mr. Trudeau tells media later he has no recollection of that meeting. So once again, 
he's for, well, either he's forgetful or the meeting never happened, but Boyle insists that it did. So this well, and, is, the, they, and the tone that was in that message that he sent was that he had something on Justin Trudeau. It did sound that's, strange, that's didn't it? It, yeah. it did sound strange. Yeah. It did, and that's did. one of the conditions that uh, Omar Carter wants varied, is he wants to re- eliminate any restrictions on his speaking with his sister Zainab, who's now married, I think, for the 37th time. Oh, no, sorry, I think it's the fourth time. And she's uh, living in the uh, Central Asian country of uh, Georgia. Uh, but so if I'm the judge, um, so you're already allowed to have conversations with them under supervision. Have you had them? Are there problems with them? And by the way, uh, you want to get uh, be allowed to uh, leave the country? You're still facing three years of a charge, so no, we're not going to let you leave the country. And instead, unfortunately, of making that immediate ruling, which I think was obvious, the judge has adjourned the case until next week. And you know, Scott, what drives people absolutely mad is that Trudeau tells us we should all stay angry because he had to deliver it. Let's listen to this. Can you play it, please? Let's play Justin Trudeau. Let's just listen to this. You seem like you're pretty upset about uh, the, uh, the payment made to Omar Khadr, um, and you should be. And you should be. You have every right to be. Actually, everyone here should be upset, because I am, that we uh, paid money that could have gone to schools, could have gone to uh, investing in any number of uh, worthy causes, but, or absolutely, more money for veterans. But we have to remember that there is a lesson here for us for all of us and for future governments, that when a government violates a Canadian, any Canadian's fundamental rights and allows them to be tortured, there are consequences and we all must pay. Mr. New York, what do you say? Absolute nonsense. Absolutely ridiculous. And that's the reason why Mr. Trudeau and the Liberal government have never entered, uh, revealed the uh, uh, legal advice they got in relation to the justification for making the, uh, the payment as to what those supposed charter breaches were. Look, this guy was a low-level foot soldier from a high-pedigree Al-Qaeda family. It would have been negligent for our officials not to go down and to speak to him. Um, as you know, I w- had some uh, friends who were actually working in uh, Guantanamo Bay, not serving, but working there. And um, one of the things that they made clear to me was that they had cameras everywhere. We gave, our officials did two sets of interviews with them, and they gave the transcripts and the videos of them. The Americans already had it. In other words, we gave them what they already had. And that, okay? was, that, was, the charter, that was the charter breach. Well, supposedly. Supposedly. And, and, but, but very interestingly, Roy, the, uh, when he went to court to uh, get the uh, ruling that his rights had been violated, the first one was to say that those transcripts had to be revealed to him. That was, I think, back in 2008, okay, which the government actually did. That's how we, uh, you and I first started our conversations with his lawyers on this, um, and that was done. Mm. Then it was that participating in the interviews and was a, was a violation of the Charter Rights, which I think is absolutely ridiculous, given the activities. And my understanding is we got very valuable information about the Carter family fundraising back in Canada for al-Qaeda. Okay. Um, Let me take a quick break, Scott. Yeah, sure. And one other thing to remember is Mr. Trudeau says, well, it could have cost us $40 million. Wherever he got that number, I don't yeah. know. But let's keep baloney. in mind. Yeah, baloney. Let's remember that Cotter was suing for $20 million. So Trudeau suddenly says he could have gotten $40 million. 
This is. I think he just draws these things out of his hat. Um, or, yeah. I, the Let best me, thing you can say about him on cases like this is he doesn't know what he's doing. The worst is that he does. I want you to listen to 10 seconds or so of Rodney Stafford speaking with my colleague Alex Pearson uh, on the uh, Ontario Global uh, Radio Network about the transfer of uh, Michael Rafferty to medium security, Scott. Listen. There's people out there for far, far less crimes doing more time than these guys. It, it doesn't make sense. Where, where's the justice for Victoria? There isn't any. Scott? Well, uh, th- what he was talking about was the way that he learned that, in fact, that the, uh, this guy who was the killer of his daughter uh, had been transferred from a maximum security. His, his security uh, had been downgraded from maximum security to medium security, and he'd been transferred to a medium uh, facility. And once again, uh, when he had originally, it now turns out that he had originally asked even the Commissioner of Correctional Service of Canada, and it appears she, uh, take your pick, misled, lied, uh, because back when he asked her about it, when this was first going on, it got into all the controversy. Um, she did not tell him he'd been transferred, and it was only after the fact that they found out that he had been uh, transferred. The um, having said that, um, and you and I have talked about this uh, before. You you make the uh, the point uh, by uh, uh, stressing the uh, deliberate decision that the government made back in the 70s to change our correction system to a focus on rehabilitation. And as when this story uh, was being reported on, uh, the former um, correctional investigator Howard uh, Sapers, uh, I think, emphasized that, again, a point that we've discussed, people in, in the Canadian system, people are sent to a prison as punishment, not for punishment. And so the notion is that it makes appropriate sense, and it's on defined criteria in the Corrections and Conditional Release Act and in the regulations about what's medium security, what's maximum security, and how the process works. What I think is really offensive about this is, once again, you know, the victims aren't told the truth. They don't, uh, they're not allowed to have a voice into this, and that's wrong. I just want to add uh, one, one aspect, one, one bit here to the Cotter story. This is from last November, and uh, this was on uh, Toronto Sun. An Algerian man is set to sue the federal government for the abuses he says he suffered at the hands of and by the way, um, Rafferty should have stayed in maximum security for the rest of his miserable life. Algerian man is set to sue the federal government for the abuses, he says, he suffered at the hands of American security forces after he left Canada 15 years ago. The unproven allegations by Jamel Ameziani, yeah. who was never charged or prosecuted, raise further questions about Canada's complicity in the abuse of detainees at Guantanamo Bay. The topic, uh, his lawyer says, demands a full-scale public inquiry. Now, the man says, my current situation is really bad. I'm struggling to survive. I was repatriated from Guantanamo and left almost homeless. I couldn't find a job because of the Guantanamo stigma and my age. So a settlement would be very helpful to get me get, let me get my life back together again. He then later on said that he wasn't aware that he could actually sue Canada. But since he could, well, what the heck? I mean, it was, uh, shall we say, a spin-off of the Catter case. Well, I am. And I, you know, wondered maybe that, uh, uh, you know, he got uh, contacted by Dennis Edney or uh, Nate Whitling, Omar Cotter's lawyers. But, uh, you know, it's just a consequence of what happens when you get goofy decisions in your system. Guess what? You know, the bad guys try to take advantage of it. Yeah, he says, for many years I had the idea of suing the Canadian government, yeah, right. but didn't know how. And honestly didn't know it was possible until I read the news <laughs> about the settlement of Omar Cotter. 
who was my fellow inmate at Guantanamo Bay. The action I'm taking may also make Canadian officials think twice before acting against the interests of Canada and Canada's human values. I wonder who planted those words in his mouth. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's the point from a practical thing. And I have some familiarity with the, uh, with the Cater case. I was aware of the Cater family and their activities before 9-11. And I'll stress that again. Uh, our officials would have been negligent had they not gone down and interviewed him with respect to activities going on in Canada. Our officials did their job, and they got thrown under the bus by the current government. i got 30 seconds, no more than that. Uh, victims surcharge for convicted criminals, gone, Supreme Court. Yeah, badly drafted law. Welcome to today's reality. You, uh, anytime you absolutely uh, get rid of the discretion of judges, you run the risk of it being found to be a charter breach. That's what, unfortunately, the Conservatives did a couple of years ago when they changed the victim fine surcharge. They made it mandatory. It's obligatory on all offenses. Uh, it was badly drafted law. They should okay. have done it a different way. Scott, thank you for the time. Okay, Roy. Scott New York, former Crown Attorney, professor at Simon Fraser University. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.